0: If, like me, you thought being a GP in a rural area was like a cross between a Doc Martin episode and All Creatures Great and Small, turns out that's not quite accurate, and GPs in rural areas face some very specific challenges. So as well as discussing those challenges today, I also learned why if a farmer comes to see you in your surgery and does not take off their muddy boots, you should suspect serious pathology, Immediately. We're also joined by some actual real life rural GPs who happen to be on our new Medics Money GP partnership course, and their experiences and insights are really valuable. But wait, what is the Medics Money New to GP partnership course? I hear you ask. Well, this is our flagship program which helps new GP partners and established partners to learn everything that they need to know. ...to run a happy, thriving and profitable GP practice. We have over 140 GPs on the programme now... ...and if you want to come and join us... ...the next cohort is starting June the 22nd... ...and you can apply at medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash GP course. For those of you with the new to GP partnership funding... ...the cost of the course is fully covered by the NHS... So head on over to medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash GP course for more details. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantillo, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. We're just going to get into it now and then just feel free to ask questions as you go along. And eventually this will be a podcast as well. So
1: perfect. if,
0: if you want your name bleeped out or whatever, let me know afterwards. I'm going to chuck your mute if that's OK, and then we'll just get going. And then just are you rural, GP?
1: Yes, I'm out in um, Staffordshire, Moorlands.
0: Amazing. Right. So someone's bid 120 square miles practice area. Someone else has bid 240. What is your bid?
1: Oh, God, I didn't check. Sorry, was I supposed to? <laughs> no, we're
0: just, we're just having a, a game of top Trumps. How, how many sheep as well? That's the most important thing.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, a lot of sheep, a lot of sheep. Sorry, I'm just making a quick coffee because I've just dropped the kids and I'm back. Right, I'm in now. I'll go and Totally fine.
0: I, I'm going to pop you on mute and then we'll get going, but feel free to jump in whenever you want. So on today's podcast, I am delighted to welcome back to the Medics Money podcast, Mr. Andrew Powell. Hi, Andy. Morning, Tommy. How are you? I am good, thank you. Good. Now, you are pretty much a veteran of the Medic's Money podcast, but do you want to give yourself the intro and tell us why you're qualified to talk about today's subject?
2: Yes, yeah, so I'm a partner in accounting firm Mazars, a healthcare partner. We act for about 350 GP practices across the UK, doing accounts, tax, pensions and stuff. But I live in the Lake District, so in a very rural area. My wife's a rural GP, so I've been f- quite involved with her practice and doing various things. As you do in rural areas, you just get stuck in the community and help out. And so yeah, I've got a great
0: passion around rural general practice. Yeah, brilliant. So as you said, your wife is a GP and in Cumbria. It's definitely worth following Andy on Twitter, partly for his wisdom on accounting, but Mainly for the amazing photos that you put up of the Lake District. What are you on Twitter again? At Medic Accountant. Yeah. So it's like a a real nice mix of uh, sage accounting wisdom and beautiful photos of the Lake District. So, should we just get, so we got a few guests in today from our GP partnership course. We got Aruni, Anna, and Antonia. And we've just discovered that how big their patches are and how rural they are. And hopefully we'll hear from them later. But should we just outline what are the issues facing rural GP practices that are different from urban practices?
2: Yeah, I mean, it it is amazingly different. Not obviously the medicine side of things is is probably very similar. And there are lots of common issues between urban and, and rural general practice. But a lot of things that stand out differently, you know, the first and foremost is the practice area which is generally a lot, lot bigger. So my wife's practice area covers all of the central lake districts. So over 200 square miles, a lot of mountains, a lot of sheep, not a lot of people, but it's a vast area. That changes the dynamics of a practice. So things like visiting takes a lot longer because you could be, you know, it could be an hour traveling to a visit there and back during the day. It also impacts on the dynamics of patients. The patients don't want to travel, And so patients struggle to access other services, they, but they don't want to go to hospital appointments that are 30, 40 miles away, particularly if they haven't got access to public transport or cars, because public transport's really poor. So you've got a whole mix of geography which causes a complete change in the dynamics. I think the access to other services is quite a crucial one. I don't know, Tommy, in your area, but in a rural area, there's no urgent treatment centres. As I said before, hospitals are quite a long way away. So access to that secondary care appointment system, tests, et cetera, are quite a long way away. Things like dentistry. You know, dentistry is poor everywhere, NHS dentistry, but in you know, a rural area, it's non-existent. So lots of services that you would normally expect in an urban area just don't exist in a rural area. You know, if you go up to things like the Highlands and Islands in Scotland, they don't even have out-of-hour services. So actually the GP practice is still the traditional GP practice from 20 plus years ago that are doing the 24-hour cover. So it is a completely different dynamic in terms of services. The next issue is probably around recruitment. There was a, a really good episode on Countryfile. I'm not sure if you country Countryfile expert, Tommy, but it was around about the 6th, 7th of March, it appeared, and it had a segment on rural general practice. And one of the things that talked about, which is fairly common, is issues in terms of recruitment. And that's not just recruitment in terms of GPs, because that's quite difficult. So GPs train in cities, they tend to train in cities, and you go from your, your medical student through to becoming qualified you then go into hospitals mainly in the city if you stay in the secondary care you'll stay in the city if you go to general practice it's a good chance you'll stay in the city and there's a smaller cohort that want to go back to rural general practice which makes it slightly harder to recruit but that applies to nursing that applies to physios you know all these PCN roles that are coming out people don't necessarily want to travel long distances to go and work and so it makes it quite difficult increasingly we're also seeing sizable recruitment issues in non-clinical staff that are going on again the rural areas tend to be slightly older populations so have a smaller cohort of a, a younger working force but they've got lots of jobs to be filled and certainly again in the late district for example tourism is massive and tourism has been affected by brexit in terms of recruiting staff in so rates of pay have gone up massively, which is making it quite hard for the NHS to actually retain and keep staff because they're competing in a far wider job market, which is offering a lot better payment terms. So recruitment's a big issue. The aging population, as I said, is a big issue. Generally, it's an older population. I think probably post-pandemic, we had a bit of a rush to the country of people thought they'd move out the city and find out that they've got there, the broadband's rubbish. It's not quite as they thought it would be. It's not a brilliant place at times for younger people to live so you've got an aging population which means again from a medical perspective you're dealing with a lot of long-term condition demand and that sort of labor-intensive patient because, of, because because of age touched up on tourism a bit in some of the rural areas are quite high tourist areas in the country you look at cornwall devon lake district Peak district you know north wales Highlands and Islands in Scotland, they attract a huge amount of incoming visitors and that has two different dynamics that go on there. Firstly, it creates a a whole temporary population that get ill when they go on holiday. And in fact, there's an element now of also people going on holiday when they're ill. And so again, my wise practice deal with quite a few people that are kind of going through the end of life cycle and just want to go to the Lake District. For the final time so they book a holiday cottage with their family but they actually need care when they get up there so often that's diverted to the local gp to deal with but they also bring in walk-ins, huge amounts of walk-ins. The number of people, that you know, Ambleside Surgery in the Lake District, is on the bus route and it comes from Keswick down to, to Windermere. So through all the tourist areas and Ambleside Health Centre actually has a stop on the bus, which says you're coming up to Ambleside Health Centre and people get off the bus and walk into the health centre because I think, oh, I've got something wrong with me. So it creates this massive walk-in demand in an urban area. It goes to an urgent treatment centre and some of the walk-ins are Probably not quite walk-ins, they're just barely walk-ins. I've had a a case yesterday where someone was scraped off off the street basically by someone walking past. Ambulance service said, we can't come for two hours, take them to the local GP practice. And actually it was one that they actually needed to be in an ambulance after hospital. So that means the practice have got to deal with that patient until the ambulance arrives and they get quite a lot of that. But tourism has a second impact in terms of the economy, particularly second home ownership has gone up massively in this country. It's driven up house prices, which means it's quite difficult for people moving into an area to go and work because they just can't afford to live there. And you know, there's not a lot of social local housing available for people who work. So you take a nurse, for example, you know, if you're getting, buying a, a house say in Windermere, you know, a terraced house would be 400000 now because it's just been driven up by second home ownership. So if you're a low earning salary or a moderate salary or in fact a good salary it's quite hard to actually afford housing. Um, so we've got a declining population in these villages going on. Actually, the overall population hasn't changed because you've got a load of incoming people who are there on a more temporary basis. So yeah, tourism has a massive impact. And, and my final, well, I've got a major gripe about this, is in terms of GP funding. It, it's not very widely known that historically, when you went back to 2004, and I know you were probably went even at school at that point in time, Tommy, but back in 2004, when the the last iteration of the gp contract came out prior to that you had something called the red book which was a fee per work done basis and one of those fees was temporary resident work so if you had a, a temporary resident come into your area you could charge a fee for doing the work that's completely gone well not completely gone you can't charge a fee now for temporary resident work but what they did is they at that point in time in 2004 into everyone's global sum they put a temporary resident allowance which was based on the previous year's temporary resident work. Since that point in time, that figure has never been inflated. So the global sum has gone up from something like 48 quid to now close to 100 pounds. Temporary resident funding is exactly the same as it was back in 2004. No inflation, no activity change. So it's really over time dwindled. And secondly, (laughs) going back that far, it was just after the period of foot and mouth, which decimated tourism in the UK in country areas. So actually it was based on a period which was actually quite low in terms of activity anyway. So all these practices in tourist areas have really been hammered in terms of they've got the demand they've got to do, they've got a statutory responsibility to see the patients but they're not really getting the pay for it. So that's a big issue and a big gripe of mine. Probably the last issue to do with general practice in rural areas is a significant number, certainly in England and Wales, not so much in Scotland because it doesn't apply as much in Scotland, are dispensing. And that means they are running a dispensary within their practice because there's no local pharmacies to dispense drugs. So that's a secondary issue that they've got to deal with. It's almost like a mini business within the practice. They have to recruit dispensers. It's like running a mini pharmacy in the practice. So it creates a bigger team of staff that you've got to manage. So that's a further complication. I kind of dwelt on the negatives there and the issues, really. I mean, ultimately, though, it's still quite a positive job. I think one of the things you will find differently from an urban and a rural area is that sense of community that still exists in rural villages. Everyone does know each other. The network of healthcare is not just healthcare people. I think people like the hairdresser are quite important in a village because they've got all the gossip. They know what's going on with Mrs. Miggins down the road. And if they've got any concerns, they'll notify the GP. So there is that sense of looking after people that still exists, you know, beautiful areas to work usually. So, you know, despite the long visits, there are some pretty spectacular visits, certainly in the Lake District. I remember my wife broke her her wrist a couple of years ago running and she slipped on some ice and she had to to drive to work a couple of times and I therefore had to do her commute compared with my commute into Manchester and yeah never can she ever complain again because it was just like this is a fantastic commute just driving along lakes and mountains so yeah so you know that side of things pretty good you also get that continuity of care to a certain extent in that you are dealing with families in a community And if you get the team right, then you are dealing with them as historic general practice used to be from birth through to death and all the interactions of families. And that's quite nice as well. And you are still seen as quite an important member of the community. So all the bad mouthing that general practice has had in the press over the last year, quite wrongly, has less affected rural areas, partly because people actually just respect people for who they are in the community, which is good. So, yeah, lots of positives as well. Quite a few differences that hopefully the GPs on the call as well would probably share those feelings.
0: We have three rural GPs on the call this morning. We were chatting about practice areas before. Does any of you want to jump in and give us your insights about working as a rural GP? Because one of them has a practice area of 120 square miles, which is kind of incomprehensible to me because my area is about five square miles.
3: I think I just echo what Andy's just said about the community spirit, especially over the lockdown period, because we've got a very big area. So there was an awful lot of community spirit, a lot of volunteering. We had groups set up to take our drugs out to these patients, especially our shielded patients in the very rural villages. And it was actually quite a nice time for that community to come together and everyone to help each other out and they're amazing for us because we just didn't know how we were going to get all the medications out to the patients otherwise that would normally come into us and we're stuck at home shields it's a
0: challenging time that's really good like uh, a positive news story and also for us as well we're we're not rural, really, but we're right by the beach. It's just a kind of like a village by the beach. And we did over 75% of our vaccinations. And it was the volunteers that staffed the vaccination centre. We just couldn't have done it without them. And they were just our patients. Every time I went there, I saw one of our patients. And they were like, oh, yeah, we're just helping out. Like, So that was, yeah, that was amazing. I mean, we talked a bit about this before before you came on, but you've got a massive practice area. I mean, what other issues do you have that, that Andy hasn't covered, if any?
3: I think he's covered a lot of them. We work on personal lists, which I think help with that massive area to deal with because our patients are very much localized within one area of our patch. So we do know that area. So if we've got, say, two visits to do, we know, which would be very, very unlikely because we have our patients very well trained that they need to come to us rather than us going to them because of the area. But if you were unlucky enough to have two visits, at least they would then be in the same area rather than, you know, 40 minute drive away from each other. So it's just... Logistics and patient training really.
0: Yeah,
4: yeah, absolutely. So a few years ago, I missed I probably semi-rural, but moved from urban three years ago. So it's I definitely echo what's been said already about the community spirit. And, and yes, we also run individual lists which help with the dispensary. But I think one of the challenges I think I've found is with the PCN across the large patch, you know, when you're trying to merge PCNs that are geographically quite distant and trying to come up with you know use ours and funding to find services that people don't want to commute too far if they can avoid it when they're already commuting quite far to a single practice so I I think that can be quite challenging in in the rural environment.
2: Yeah I think on the PCN side the positive side is actually that the local practices already had that sense of community and they did accept at least talk to each other perhaps less so than, than in urban areas but yeah the size is a huge challenge in terms of those sort of lower grade um, or lower paid ars staff you know often are traveling from where, where i live traveling 30 40 miles to go to a surgery and they just don't want to go there so they're trying to do a lot of their clinics remotely which isn't great if you're a physio particularly you can do some bits but not everything the covid vaccination thing i think was pointed out earlier was a huge challenge again where i live the the pcn geographical size is I think we, we mapped it and stuck it over Greater London. and It's a third of the size of Greater London, just to put that in context. And and it covers 32,000 patients across eight GP practices. So dotted all over the place, but it's, it's, the logistics of that are quite difficult to deal with. So yeah, PCNs are quite challenging. And I'm not sure the PCNs, I mean, generally I'm not sure they're necessarily working as well as perhaps they were envisaged to, I think partly because how commissioners have changed what they're meant to be. But yeah, I think the issue in a rural area is actually you're putting together a a group of practices which are similar but actually you could have one rural practice in a quite affluent area in in a rural area but actually within that greater geography you could have a rural practice that's dealing with a not so affluent population will have completely different challenges going on in an urban area they're more likely to be a more similar cohort of patients so that can create tensions
0: yeah uh, I mean, this has been super insightful for me because I envisaged that rural general practice would be like a cross between a Doc Martin episode and a bit of all creatures, great and small. Turns out maybe it's not. So, <laughs> just sort of uh, summarizing, obviously, the geography and the area is an issue, recruitment is an issue. And you've got the added factor of second homers driving up house prices. That is a massive problem for me, by the way, in my area, because we live right by the beach and everyone from London seems to just want to move by the beach. That was until that storm. Erwin came uh, and it was like blowing about 80 knots over the roof of my house. And I think they weren't used to that. But let me just get this straight, right? Because this is something that hurts us a lot as well, is that if you get a temporary resident, yeah, you're basically charging the same price for that work today as you were in 2004. And I don't know many businesses that still charge the same price for that work uh, that they did in 2004 today. I mean, that seems grossly unfair,
2: it's the same price and the same volume as well, you know, so it's not actually. So it's a fixed you know, price. It's it a fixed, yeah. You've basically got 3,000, 4,000 pounds, that's it. And you have to deal with whatever comes through the door. So yeah, and it's one of the things, it's appeared in various iterations of the GP contract since then of, yeah, we need to look about temporary residence, but it's always one of those things that sort of goes back to the bottom of the intray because it gets a bit too tricky in how to deal with it. And probably they realize actually it's probably going to cost quite a bit of money to sort it. And it's really frustrating because if you go to the secondary care market, if someone walks into A&E or to an urgent treatment center or something like that, they get paid an items of service fee for it, which is way, way more than general practice ever got even back in 2004, even if you inflated it. So yeah, it's a whole mash of work that is unpaid for, but actually is contractually responsible for. So it's not that you can't do it. You have to do it still.
0: Yeah. And of course, if someone comes into your surgery needing immediate assistance, there's not any single one of us that's going to say no, of course. But I just thought it'd be worth raising that because basically you've got a price that was fixed in 2004 and you just have to carry on doing that work so listen the reason that everyone came here this morning andy is to get your wisdom on how can accountants help to mitigate some of these challenges because i know you've got some good tricks up your sleeve after many many years of of this
2: yeah i mean um no, i can't necessarily mitigate everything i can't mitigate the issues of rural general practice and more generally i think it's becoming more challenging in general practice as a whole because of the complexity of the work on the management side and the administration side. Obviously, we can't deal with the clinical side. I guess what lockdowns taught us is that we've all had to adapt, you know, all businesses have had to adapt in the UK, and very much now we are in a position where accountants can really provide a lot of services now remotely and a lot of more services in a more real-time thing because there's some really great software packages out there now that, that work on the cloud. So we can provide, in our firm, we can provide bookkeeping financial support from anywhere in the country for a GP practice with reports and keep their accounting systems on the go so they've got real-time management information. Things like payroll, for example, payroll is getting more complicated and we've got issues with changes in pension contributions coming midway through this year for staff, which is going to cause an administrative burden. Again, payroll services have historically always been quite remote. They could be done remotely. Our, Our payroll team, for example, is in Glasgow. I'm in Manchester, live in the Lake District, can be done from anywhere really. So accountants are quite well placed now to provide services remotely, which means actually accessing that specialism that you need perhaps with gp practice whilst i may be biased i think you should be using medical specialist firms because they know what's going on whereas before you may not have had one in your rural area now actually does it matter so much because actually you can use that talent pool that exists in other parts of the country so we're very much trying to sort of promote and push and support both our urban and rural practices to allow us to assist them more on an ongoing basis, and that frees up the management time. And one of the issues with perhaps practice management is it's so complex now in that you've got to deal with finance, business issues, HR issues, contractual issues, day-to-day patient stuff, CQC, the list goes on. I'm not sure these days of a, a small practice with one single practice manager can actually deal with all of this anymore because it's just too complicated for them not enough hours in the day so ultimately practices will have to look to actually which bits of that job could they give to someone else and in a rural area because you're limited by one practice with a smaller list size you can't just buy in three days of business management support but actually your accountants can help fill that gap for you.
0: Sounds perfect. Like you say, the shift to remote has enabled lots of things. and Also, like a big thing that I find useful from our practice accountants is benchmarking. Presumably, you have lots of benchmarking data for rural practices. So should we talk a bit briefly about that and how that might help rural practices to maximize their efficiency, shall we say? So benchmarking is quite an important tool in terms
2: of just comparing practice year on year with their previous performance, but also comparing with other practices and, and like-minded practices, because there's no point comparing a single-handed GP with a 50,000 list size practice because they're, they're chalk and cheese. And likewise, there are common bits between rural and urban practices, but there's bits that are different. So you will find the staff structure will be completely different because of things like the dispensary side. Dispensing profit margins are really important in a dispensing practice because of the numbers. So if your dispensing profit margin drops by 5%, if you're in an urban practice where you haven't got a lot of self-administered drugs, baths and flus and a a few other things, it's important that you don't drop that 5%, but it's not going to make a massive financial difference. But in a a rural practice, 5% on maybe a turnover of 500,000 suddenly makes a massive difference in terms of profitability. So you've got to be able to benchmark and compare and see yourself compare with your peer practices. I would always say you've got to be careful with benchmarking is benchmarking is very useful, but it's always got to be interpreted. You can over benchmark, you can benchmark down to sundry expenses and your tea and coffee and things like that. But actually, it's the crucial things you've got to focus on. Which is on the cost side—it's your staff costs, your premises costs, your drugs kind of costs. There, you're probably get your three big headings. Income-wise, again, it's useful to benchmark your income, but there's limits to what you can do. So your global sum, unfortunately, is your global sum, and if you're low compared with average, well, there's not an awful lot you can do about it. But you can actually then see, well, if we increased our list by 100 patients, what impact that's going to have. But you know, local enhanced services, maximising quaff—you know. All those kind of statistics are quite important, really.
0: Yeah, awesome. What I think we should do now is just go for a free-for-all questions so that everyone can, because I'm sure people have got questions. And someone just sent me where their practice is, and I've just Googled it, and it looks amazing. A beautiful spot. Can I start with a, a real easy question for you, Andy?
2: You can start. They're never easy, Tommy. They're never easy.
0: It's just because someone asked me the other day and I wasn't sure. So you mentioned sort of cloud accounting, real time accounting, which has tremendous benefits. And we've done a session on that on the course, but because dispensing practices and VAT is just complicated, basically. But those real time cloud accounting systems, do they work for dispensing practices is my question.
2: Yeah. So you pointed that the dispensing practice, the biggest issue is VAT. And they fall into a VAT category, which is the most bizarre complex and not so easy to understand VAT because it comes as a thing called partial exemption. So the cloud accounting packages can work for it. They have to be set up properly though. And you have to do a bit of manipulation of the data, not a huge amount, but once set up, it's okay. But I mean, there's only really one product out there, which is truly bespoke for general practice. I best probably not name names on this podcast. And. That deals with the dispensing side very well, but it's quite an old version of the software and it doesn't have all the modern features of cloud software. But yeah, you absolutely can make it work, but it probably does need some help in terms of the setting it prop- properly
0: up. Okay, that's cool. All right. I, I wanted to ask uh, Aruni a question because she said that she worked in uh, semi rural now, but Urban before she trained in urban. What do you prefer? What's the difference for you? Oh,
4: it's massively different. I found it was a huge steep learning curve moving to rural. Urban, you've kind of spoilt with chemists everywhere that are open till late and minor injuries, walk ins, all of that. So, a lot of the minor injuries. So, when I came to this new job, suddenly I was having to suture again. I don't do it often, but suddenly I was having to deal with all these minor injuries. And actually, you do get those folk that walk in with massive head injuries because they've got nowhere else to go. They're walking with you know blood pouring out and i know it's not limbs hanging off but you definitely see a step up in all of those back to basics medicine and we've had a few emergencies we've even had a hems into our car park i mean it's just it's not sleepy and quiet and rural as my family would have thought it is actually really quite complex
2: yeah i think when we moved because we moved from an urban to a rural area and probably within the first couple of weeks i'm sure my my wife had to Find a spot for the helicopter to land in a field. It was like I've not been trained to do this, <laughs> well, you know, but she had to find it. It was like get the mountain rescue team out to move the patient to the helicopter so yeah all different kinds of challenges
0: yeah I mean just knowing for me like if I have an emergency in my practice I can be reasonably confident I say reasonably that the ambulance will be there in a reasonably timely fashion but for you in the rural it sounds definitely not so that just changes the dynamic a whole lot and we talked briefly about my sort of knowledge of my farmer's triage system which is basically if a farmer consults a doctor it is incredibly serious until proven otherwise i think anna you had a few experiences of that do you want to tell us about that
3: Fortunately, it wasn't me but one of my colleagues has obviously had farmers come in having a heart attack really with just a little bit of chest pain here doctor and you know they, they do walk in to us rather than going straight to a and e which you'd expect other normal people urban cities to perhaps do
2: yeah sounds exciting you know it's a real problem they don't take their boots off because generally they're quite polite and will take their wellies off before coming into surgery but if they haven't taken their boots off they've got a major problem going on
3: exactly or if they come in during harvest time you know that there's a real issue because they do not get off their tractor during that time for anything that's vaguely not super life-threatening one question I did have are PCN. We're with two other practices and they are very much town-based practices with high density of patients in a small area with nursing homes. So we're a little bit of the outlier as a rural practice. I was just thinking longer term is what the disadvantages of doing that rather than being linked because we did have the option of, of being linked with some other rural practices but for some reason I can't remember why we chose to go with the two town practices. Are there any pros or cons in terms of being completely rural PCNs versus combined rural and urban PCNs?
2: I think the issue with a completely rural PCN is that distance issue because you've got an even wider geographical area that you're dealing with. The nursing home one's a really interesting one because there's been a huge emphasis on nursing home and again where I live We've got a, a town called Grange-over-Sands. So we've got loads of nursing homes down there. So the nursing home emphasis in the, the PCN des has been very much focused down there. And in the north end of the patch, which is very much the Lake District's villages, there are no nursing homes. They don't exist. They live at home and they get cared for at home, or in fact, don't get cared for at home because all the social care services have collapsed for the same reasons as it talked about in terms of recruiting people. So that creates a different dynamic that you're having to have practices compete against each other saying, like, right, well, you are Getting all the nursing home resource but we're actually we're doing that work but in a different format and so i think that kind of mixture of practices will have to evolve in terms of trying to work out how to share the resource properly i think partly it's been limited by how pcns are developed in that it's been still too restricted in terms of what staff you can employ and how you utilize them i think you know that applies to urban areas as well so if they see sense and actually give pcns the budget to just go and spend it on what they think they need to spend it on then i think it'd be a lot more flexible. And that that urban stroke rural setup won't matter so much. But the rural one will be limited, again, by just size, because you may be in with three or four practices, but they could be miles and miles away from you. So actually sharing staff is still quite difficult.
3: We tend not to share our staff between the various practices and kind of effectively employ them via the PCM but each practice holds on to their stuff and they just work for that surgery rather than being shared between them.
2: Yeah I mean it, it probably helps in your area that there's, if there's only three practices it yeah. means it's going to be three sizable practices which will help yeah. other rural areas may have large numbers of smaller practices and that's where they do have
0: to share stuff which becomes more complex.
3: Yes, absolutely.
0: Antonia, do you want to jump in?
1: Yeah, hi. Our PCN is actually named Moreland's Rural, and we are that. I think we're six practices, and we are all a bit smaller and all very spread out over... Our PCN size is a lot larger... We're actually based in a town situation, but we cover the rural area as well. So we are dispensing and we have a problem because of that size and because we're on the edge of our CCG. So things like acute visiting services, the paediatric nursing teams that come out into the community, that kind of thing, make those calls first thing. The capacity has gone because they just say they can't get out that far. It's sort of not efficient to be doing those visits. So we tend to lose out on the size in that way and as you say we get a lot more walk-ins for chest pain we do get the benefit of farmers offering to pick up medications during the winter when there's a lot of snow and distribute those on tractors because we can't get out to the hillside areas so easily so that's been a benefit for the community systems that we're talking about but the PCN is a bit more complicated on that large size and we do have to share staff because we're not big enough to necessarily have our own staff member with the funding that's given and as you say patients don't want to go to the hospital. They will try and get everything done by the practice if at all possible, and it's sometimes very hard to persuade them that actually they do need to go up to the hospital, which is in Stoke. And our ambulance times are often massive, even in normal times. they are about 20 to 25 minutes more often than not. And we've actually over the winter this year operated and sort of oxygen and oxygen dissemination. We have two oxygens in practice, but practices were finding they were running out because they were waiting for sort of 45 minutes to an hour. So we've actually got a system now to know where the Oxygen stored so that if our canisters are running out, because we haven't had an ambulance arrive for it's often a child, actually. We now have a share of knowing who's got oxygen and how many canisters and that kind of thing, which has changed over well, it's a new thing for this year, really, that we've never had to do before.
0: Uh, And I think there's a common sort of theme in there that as other parts of the system crumble often the buck stops with gps you know for the reasons that you just so eloquently outlined andy can i ask a quick question about so just for that they bought some extra oxygen right but there was a fund that you could claim back things like this from is it worth mentioning that or is that ship sailed now
2: well that, that was under the covid reimbursement side yeah that ship's completely sailed i think what's referred now is actually there's a lot more just non-covid related stuff that's walking in that oxygen issue is you now is a really good example of stuff now that is required to be happening in the surgery because the ambulance services can't cope they can't get there quick enough so you're having to look after a patient in a surgery for 30 minutes an hour maybe an hour more who needs oxygen so they have to have that available which is an extra cost to the practice but also have to have a member of staff that's actually monitoring that patient who may have booked in patients elsewhere, so the whole system has to stop to look after that one person. So, yeah, there's not a great deal of extra funding for that.
0: All right. Any parting words of wisdom, Andy? I think we might have some questions off record in a minute, but any parting words of wisdom for our podcast listeners?
2: Rural practices is a great place to work. I think if you're looking for that more traditional role where you are exposed to probably the full remits of medicine from the emergency stuff through to your long-term care of uh, population. It's a great place to work. And obviously from a personal viewpoint, living in the country, I love living in the country because I like getting out, walking, et cetera. So that's a really positive thing. Against that is I think there are issues beginning to grow now in terms of recruitment, retention of people, which will become more problematic. The digital transformation, which is always pushed as being the way that general practice is going to get itself out of the problem is going to be quite harder in a rural area certainly we have parts of where i live where even getting a mobile signal is is near enough impossible broadband's really difficult so those sort of remote services aren't as easy to to put out so yeah it's a challenging place but rewarding but getting more and more difficult i think
0: if somebody wants to get hold of you what's the best way to get hold of you So you can
2: either email me at Mazars.co.uk or find us on the medics money website
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much to people from our course that came as well today. That really helped. I'm going to say goodbye to our podcast listeners and let's carry on the chat with our course participants. And if you want to come on the course, I'll put the link to that in the bottom as well.